Hi and hello, this is Trish Langley from Pong Hair. I'm a registered midwife in Ontario and I'm really excited uh, to introduce myself for the first time as a new host of The Birth Talks. Following in the footsteps of my, um, we have shared an appreciation for storytelling and conversations and the power and impact of those stories and conversations. And so I hope as our journey together expands um, that we'll be able to dive into some fun topics, maybe some uncomfortable conversations um, that will allow for new ways of considering and new ways of approaching uh, birth, pregnancy, postpartum and parenting. Pregnancy, birth, parenting. It means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? Our birth conversations are often the kind that get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we will leave you with some answers, but perhaps more questions. These are the birth conversations that matter. These are the birth talks. Are you ready? This episode, we will hear from Chanel, a mom with a disability advocating for herself throughout her pregnancy while navigating harmful assumptions within her care, as well as hearing from Kosar's empowering birth stories as she in some moments moved between personal choice within the context of familial and cultural norms. Okay. (laughs) Hi, um, my name is Chanel Smith. I'm currently a first year student at York and I have a young daughter and <laughs> my experience I can laugh about it now so it's um so it's it's definitely been a long road but it's it's one worth sharing and I hope that well I hope that not many people can relate because it was it was for me it was hard and very trying that I think that was the hardest time of my life um I found out I was pregnant when I was quite far along about 22 weeks um and part of it was in denial because I was young and scared and I had never even changed a diaper before let alone being a parent and the other side of it was I just inherently knew that there was not a place for me in the healthcare system, specifically with pregnancy. I, I inherently knew that. And I, I tried to avoid it for as long as possible. And having no prenatal care for the vast majority of your pregnancy, I'm not, I'm not um, endorsing that. And, and that was definitely my, one of my biggest regrets, but sadly, I was right because I, I, even when I asked for prenatal care, I was rejected by a lot of uh, OBGYNs. I think there was only one place in North America that would take me. I wasn't allowed to go to women's college. I didn't have a choice. Um, I was shuttled around, and they told me try this person. One OBGN would tell me, try this person. And it was just, eventually I got to Mount Sinai, but it was still a very new thing. I wasn't able 
to, to make a lot of decisions. And I, I had little to no support. I had little to no support. And my biggest thing was I, I was told that, I was told by my initial, my initial doctor that um, I, don't I don't deserve to be a parent and um, I should abort. And I, they flew me over to some doctor in London and I didn't want, I didn't do, I didn't do it, thank God. But just being told as soon as you give birth, if that's what you choose, we're gonna take away your baby. That was for me the hardest thing because I spent my whole life proving that I could do everything and I've hit every milestone that they said I couldn't. I've walked, I've talked, I've went to school, I've driven. So it, it to hear that and all those fears that I had believed that I that I wouldn't get prenatal care and that I would be rejected. And part of the reason why I didn't want prenatal care, it became my reality. I was not, there was nowhere for me. And going to Mount Sinai, they tried. And like I said, I didn't have any option. They were the only doctor that would take me. So even though there was a lot of challenges, I didn't, I didn't, that was it for me. And fast forward to the birth of my daughter, I didn't, I didn't have that, those moments of clarity. I didn't have, I didn't have a chance to take those pictures. I didn't have a chance to have those, those moments, those precious moments when you first give birth because she was ripped out of my arms. And in that, in that instance, up to that point, I thought that I had proven myself to society. But in that instance, I knew that I was not, I was not equal. I've never felt my disability. I've never felt that it was a problem. I always accepted it until I became a mother. That's when, for the first time in my life, I really resented my CP because here, these doctors are telling me that I can't do this and I can't do that. And I can't even change a diaper. I can't be alone with my daughter, let alone hold her. <laughs> and I, I, I did, I, I had to go through with the pregnant belly and everything. I, I had that doll simulator. <laughs> I, you know, I was in and out of a shelter and I still made it work. And I had to prove myself to CAS and all those other agencies and you can imagine being pregnant and having to take care of a simulator and you're being graded and you're in a shelter so you don't have the privacy to do those things effectively. So it was because you have to work on their schedule and abide by their rules while trying to take care of this doll and feeling judged. But thankfully, I, I did it. And, but I, I still had those people even even family members that I would have never thought would have ever looked at me as a person with CP because I I 
in my opinion, I, and in my view, I thought I was doing good until I had a baby. And I realized that, wow, people come up to me on the street and tell me to this day, I don't deserve to be a parent. And why did I put my daughter through that? Having a parent with limits, they felt like I was limiting her. So I still get that. And my daughter's four. She's, she's well taken care of. She's so happy, so smart. And I'm still facing that. But just, just the fact that I didn't get prenatal care because I was scared of being judged. And that's exactly what happened. Whether or, And it would have happened whether or not I had waited or I had had prenatal care right at the beginning. And like I said, I was young, I was dumb, and I was scared. But the, obviously, those fears were warranted because when I did say, hey, look, I'm pregnant, I had to, with my pregnant belly and all, and my wheelchair, I was literally going to different OBGYNs, begging them, and a lot of them said no, flat out no. <laughs> they refused care. So even with my experience, and I was in the hospital for longer than most because they were trying to figure out my supports and my adaptive equipment and where I was going to live, and it was just a lot. And I'm one of those people. Some people crumble under pressure, but that pressure fuels me. So when everybody was saying that I can't, and not only am I going to get my daughter taken away, but I'm here on the streets and I'll never overcome that, I use that as fuel. And here four years later, I'm a four-year university student. I'm, I've been living in the same location for over five years. And homelessness and inconsistency that has played my life. And it's crazy because I feel like I broke a lot of general cur generational curses. I've never, I'm 26 years old and I've never lived in the same place for this long and it feels great. It feels great because it's a small thing for some, but for a person who's moved out and it, who's used to instability, having that stability is so peaceful and so comforting to know that I, I have four walls and it's all mine and it may not be perfect, I may not be rich, but I, but I have somewhere to lay my head every night and I don't have to worry and my daughter's okay. And it's, it's, those, it's those little things that kind of, that get me through, you know, having my daughter ripped out of my arms, being told by professionals who should know that CP is not progressive and they should know that CP is cerebral palsy, which is the condition that I have, CP, doesn't limit you and they should know this they're the ones telling me that i can't do this and i think after a while when you start hearing things so much you start to believe it and i really had to take a step back and silence those voices and just love my daughter and sometimes i had to fake it till i make it because i didn't even believe it myself because i was being told so much and i I'm far from perfect. I, you know, I was that rebellious teen. I had my ups and downs like any teenager, but I don't think I still can't wrap my head around how professionals can say those things. And I'm so happy 
that it didn't break me and it built me up to be the person that I am. I took all those negative words and I turned it into the life that I have now. I have a long way to go. I still have two more years in my program at York. I, I have I have a long way to go with my emotional stability because hearing those things, it broke me down over the course of the last four years. But I speak positivity. I tell myself good things every day and it, it helps. And the fact that my daughter looks at me and she doesn't see the disability, she depends on me. She doesn't say, oh, are you sure you want to stand? She looks at me and she expects me to do what she sees other parents doing. And I, because of that, I don't skip a beat and I love it because she doesn't see my cerebral palsy. She looks at me and she sees her mother. And I, I'm not going to say that it doesn't hurt, but I think that's good enough for me. My name is Kausar Yasin. Uh, I am a Somali born uh, and raised in Toronto, Canada. I identify as a black Muslim Canadian woman, and I happen to be a mother of two, my son who is now five years old and my daughter who will be three in August. So my birth stories were very ideal for both of my deliveries. Um, I am the eldest in my family and both my babies were the first of the family. So you can guess everyone was very involved and happy and uh, we come from a very community and family-based tradition. And I was wholeheartedly welcoming them into my journey of pregnancy and, and throughout my labors and deliveries, I just, I wanted family there. Um, so of course it came as a surprise when my entire community and my community just being my mom and my sisters um, came with me to the clinic. Um, uh, everyone was very involved and my family were very much a part of my pregnancy, uh, labor and delivery. So it came, I think, as a surprise to everyone at the clinic whenever my mom and my sisters and I showed up to the uh, clinic visits. Usually the rooms were a little small and there were only two chairs that could accommodate for um, typically the client and their partner. Um, so <laughs> It, it was something I didn't view as a problem. I mean, I expected it to be like that. Once it came to the uh, delivery of my first, my son, I gave birth at the Toronto Birth Center and on the form to fill out all the names of the people who would come, of course, I put in my entire family, my brother, my sisters, my mom, my aunt, everybody, I expected them to come. I wanted them to be a part of it. And thankfully they were a part of it. Um, we also have a tradition after the birth to give presents and gifts to the midwives. For my first, um, I didn't have a black midwife. They were both um, white midwives. Uh, so it was surprising to them to be offered money and food. And they were caught a little off guard, which was, it was funny. And it was funny for me. And it was a teaching moment for me to be able to tell them these are things that we do. And my family is just happy. It's not that they're tipping you, but it's just that we're really happy. Uh, once it came to the second birth, um, I had a black midwife, which was a huge change because I think she sort of expected a lot of what we came with. So when she came to take me into the clinic room and she found me and my, my whole family, uh, she welcomed us in and not that my, my 
white midwives didn't welcome us in, but it's just, it, it didn't come as a surprise. It didn't throw her off and it wasn't uncomfortable for her at all. So when it came to time to give birth, uh, second birth, I gave birth at home. Uh, it was a decision that I made, I think, outside of even my family. Coming from an African household, um, the idea of having a birth at home was in a way barbaric to them. Uh, they come from a place where hospitals were for the privileged and for people who had the money to be able to afford it. So when I came home and I told them I want to give birth at home, they were outraged. So that was something for me to, to deal with. It's surprising that my Black family didn't know what goes on at the hospitals, um, you know, how this, the story is for Black clients and the mortality rates and, and all that information just was not, they were not aware to it. So for me to have a home birth was just, how could you? Um, but it, eventually it did work out. I, I got very lucky. Again, my it was sort of a last minute decision where the midwife came home and to, to the home to check on me. And I just decided, let, let's just go ahead and and do it. And again, my whole family were there. My, my son at that point was two and a half. And he popped into the room and for me, I was just, I was flabbergasted. Somebody take him out. But it, at the end of it, after giving birth, I was surprised. I was very happy with the experience. I feel that my knowing what to expect and having done the research and being a self-advocate in a way was a big deal for me. And it just breaks my heart to see my sisters and my family members um, not having that opportunity the way that I had. For me, I look back and I'm really happy about how it all went. Um, but the one thing that does bother me is I advocated for myself and I, I think I consider myself strong enough and educated enough to make the decisions um, and take the risks that come with those decisions. If it means I have a home birth against um, the decisions of my family, if it means that I, I, you know, those are things that I, that I held very dear and I thought was very important to me, but it did not turn out the same for my sister and many other Somali friends that I have. Uh, for them, they, I don't know if it was maybe a lack of awareness, maybe it was the fact that they didn't know their options or just that their family were stronger willed. I'm not sure how to, how to put it, but um, I think I'm the only one that I know in my community who has had a successful home birth or a birth even at the Toronto Birth Center. Most end up at the hospital. And unfortunately, um, many, many of the girls that I know, along with my sister, ended up um, uh, having a C-section and other in, uh, inductions and other augmentations and things that just was not obviously in the case of an emergency, very different. But um, it seemed like horror stories to me, all these young girls having to go through um, these experiences. So for me, I, I'm very blessed and happy with my experience. And again, after the birth, um, we showered the midwives with food and gifts, but it felt different this time around. Um, there was a, a big relationship that my midwife, my black midwife had with my mom and um, my, my sisters and my brother and my family. Um, and that made me so much happier. It made me just, you know, excited. And I continue to think back on that time um, with such good memories. Hope that all like the Black community are able to have that experience of having their Black midwives there and having, you know, it changes the experience to have someone 
um, who understands your culture and your traditions and your people, the risks that you guys might might have. It just changes the whole experience. If you love the podcast, please leave the podcast a review or subscribe on iTunes to keep it going. Think you have a birth conversation that matters and want to share? We are always looking for stories. So contact us at thebirthtalks.com or on Facebook. If you have comments on this episode, find us on Twitter or Facebook at The Birth Talks or use the hashtag The Birth Talks. I'm your host, Trish Langley Frempong. Until next time.